I want to invite you to go to 1 Thessalonians once again. Those of you that are guests with us today, we're thankful to have you. And uh, you'll learn very quickly, if you come more than once, that we walk our way through books of the Bible. And so we are preaching our way through 1 Thessalonians now in a series entitled More and More, Steadfast Toward the Day of Christ. And today the sermon is entitled, Emboldened by God's Word. Emboldened by God's Word. And this letter, I want to tell you, this letter has been just uh, such a refreshing encounter for me in my preparation and I told some of you folks recently, it doesn't feel like my preparation is different to preach, but it seems like the Lord, the Spirit is just ministering to me as I look into these words of the book of First Thessalonians. And I hope as you prepare, you know, week in and week out, you don't have to ask where we're going next. So you know what to read, you know what to meditate upon, you know what to pray through. You know where you can already be confessing and repenting of sin before we even come to Sunday morning. Now, as we have walked through this, we, we're, we're still not really even done with the introduction of the book. And we're approaching the end of chapter 2. Uh, Paul has he's, he's expressed his um, just over-the-top kind of thanksgiving for these people, how they responded to his preaching. We'll see more of that here today, especially how it seemed that the Spirit was working in their ministry among the saints, those who would become saints by believing in Jesus at Thessalonica. And um, he has addressed an issue that came up along the way in chapter 1 and more explicitly at the beginning of chapter 2. There were those people in Thessalonica that were trying to damage his ministry. They were, as we'll learn today, there were Jews there, and he says this in Acts, or Acts 17 says this, that there were Jews there that were trying to uh, sort of snuff out the gospel preaching that was happening in Thessalonica, and they, they created such an uproar that there was a mob of people that was, it was made up of Jews and Gentiles that lived in that region who just didn't want anything that Paul had to bring they wanted him out of town. So they literally went into a guy named Jason's house and tried to take Paul and his com companions and put them in prison. They couldn't find Paul, couldn't find his companions. So they end up um, arresting Jason and some others. Uh, a big ordeal. They took money from him as sort of a security, and then they let him go. So these people were, this is what they were facing in Thessalonica. The people there who did not respond to the gospel, many of them were so offended by the message of the gospel, so offended by uh, this grace that, that Paul preached about. This guy who, man, he used, to be, he used to be like one of the top Jews, a Pharisee, a tribe of Benjamin. This is who he was, and now he's telling us this? So these people were unhappy. What Paul did while he was there, though, he set an example, he and his companions. He set an example before them that, as we learned last week, was like he says, a mother, a nursing mother to her children. He says, that's how we were among you. We gently cared for you. But he also said, we were also like that father that charges you, that encourages you, 
that helps you to become equipped to do what is good and right. So there was that gentle care. There was, we can say it, godly instruction that they watched from him. And his encouragement in this chapter two was, you guys got to continue in this. And this is, this is replete throughout the letter, more and more. You love well, let's get more and more love. You obey well, let's get more and more obedience. You're on mission, let's reach farther and farther. More and more is what Paul is bringing out of these people who proved to get off to such a good start. So I want you to read with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, we'll read verses 13 through 16. That is today's preaching text. I want you to know as we start to read 13, he ties this thanksgiving back to verse 2 in chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Verse 13, chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray once more. Father, we certainly confess our desperate need of your help to illumine the word, shed the light that we need from heaven to see Jesus, to know him, to worship him, and to be transformed into his likeness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title, Emboldened by God's Word. And that's my desire. I think that's the desire of Paul from this text today. To be bold, to be courageous. Just a simple reading of those verses shows you how the Word of God, they received and accepted the word that was preached to them as the word of God, and it caused them to stand against all the opposition. That's my encouragement to you today. Bold and courageous. Here's the theme this morning. When God's word is accepted as such, his call to new life outweighs every risk. process that, okay? When God's word is accepted as such, his call to new life outweighs every risk. Once again, the Thanksgiving mentioned here continues the Thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter, yet here the Thanksgiving recalls the preceding verses and anticipates the verses that we just read, the next few. It ties together their welcoming of Paul's crew and their intentional ministry among the Thessalonians with their initial response to the preached message, the message that they received and, as he says, accepted here. 
Literally, we could say, we thank God constantly for this thing. That's how it reads. We thank God constantly for this thing. And the thing for which he is thankful is the God-wrought courage of the Thessalonian church in the face of that opposition, even in the face of persecution. These are young believers. And Paul is saying, it's the word of God that has built you up, even in these early days. It has built you up so that you can withstand these attacks. I want to give us this morning two instructions from Thessalonian courage. Two instructions from Thessalonian courage here. First off, verse 13, accept the word as God's word. Accept the word as God's word. If you're a Christian, don't gloss over this. Oh, yeah, of course, I believe it's God's word. God's word. Of course. Accept the word as God's word. Here's what it says. I'm going to read it again because I love this verse. We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I think this breaks down into two parts, accepting the word as God's word. First off, he uses the word receive. So we can say this word is received through preaching. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. Now, keep in mind that the completed Bible, the completed Bible, the canon, what we call the canon of scripture, you hold in your hands was recognized as God's authoritative word in the early church. Yet at the time of this writing, obviously, I'm just trying to remind you, the book's that would be in the Bible were being written. And this is one example. So believers and hearers of the gospel in this day relied upon the apostolic witness to communicate God's special revelation through preaching and through these letters which came afterward. They were reliant upon the preached word of God. I know it's not as common today. It still exists today. But many people don't know how to read. Is it a prerequisite? Is it a prerequisite to becoming like Christ? You have to know how to read? No, of course not. And so in oral traditions that hear the gospel and then start churches all across the world that has happened through centuries and centuries, how are these people conformed to the image of Christ? They hear the word preached and they are transformed by the work of the Spirit upon hearing God's word. I think sometimes we devalue the preached word of God because we have stacks and stacks of Bibles at home. Oh, well, I don't need to go to church. I can just read what it says right here. It's just me and the Holy Spirit, right? No. God has given you the local church that you may hear the preached word of God. How are people saved? The Bible says they must hear the gospel. 
Romans 10. These Thessalonian believers heard the word of God and the message of the gospel preached faithfully by Paul and his companions. It was received. Now the word here, received, it isn't about the Thessalonian believers. This word received is a technical word that refers to the authoritative weight of the message being preached. They received this beautiful, wondrous, eternal, weighty message. Here's a way we can understand this. Around my house, with all the kids we got, we've received several letters from the IRS in the past year or so. Several. And they remind us of all the money that they've given us, right? (laughs) Tax credits and all that kind of business. And if you're like us, and many of you, uh, I mean, you probably received one of those letters anyway. These letters have come with a declaration of our credited amount that, oddly enough, we are paying for right now. (laughs) You receive those declarations from the IRS, but it's not you or your opinion or your response or your feeling about this letter from the IRS that matters. No matter what you do with that letter, the message contained in that letter, the message it carries has the authority of the United States Internal Revenue Service. You can rip it up, can't you? Hey, rip it up. Just rip it up, right? You can burn it if you want to. You can start your fire with it on these cold days. You can rip it up. You can burn it. You can just toss it directly in the trash. But the message is still authoritative. Do you hear me? The message is authoritative no matter what you do with it. When you receive the preached gospel of God, folks, when it enters into your ears and you are told about sin and you're told about the cross and the buried Christ and the resurrection and the only proper response, you know what you can do? You can ignore it. You can scoff at it. You can slander the missionary. You can curse at it. You can hate it. You can call it foolishness. But the received message still stands authoritative over you, over us. The point, as Wanamaker writes, is that the word of preaching received by the Thessalonians from Paul and his colleagues was a message of divine origin. So reception is about the message. They receive this message, the gospel of God. We can say it this way, the gospel of God. He's used that phrase several times now. The gospel of God is from God. But there's another word, a different word Paul uses here also. He says, when you receive the word of God, all right, received, which you heard from us, 
You accepted it. These are two different words in the Greek. You received the message for what it is, beautiful message. When you received it, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the word of God is received through preaching. Secondly, it is accepted by faith. Accept. This word here differs from received in that it now focuses upon the hearers of the message. They accepted the message, we may say, with approval. They welcomed the word of God with a favorable evaluation, Hebert notes. The evidence that they accepted the message is their faith. It's both the faith at the start, and it is the faith that is ongoing. He calls them at the end of verse 13. He says, you believers, it's, it's what is at work in you believers. So make note here that the response of saving faith, here's application, the response of saving faith in Jesus upon hearing the message of the gospel is not one that just surfaces at the time of conversion and then goes dormant. It is a faith that grows and abounds more and more continually. So to the one who believes God's word in the gospel, God begins that work in them that will be completed at the day of Christ. And it bears fruit every step of the way. As he says, which is at work in you believers, that word work is like energy. It's the word that, that, that brings about that spiritual energy inside of you that produces righteousness and holiness and love. And we can say all the one another's of the New Testament. And I'll tell you, I've been so encouraged lately among the saints here. It's been a season where I can recall several very difficult conversations that could have been very detrimental to our lives and to the body of Christ. And you know what? You know what God has proven to me? That the word, when it is at work in the believers, it works. It works. A lot of you are scared to have conversations, hard conversations. You know, I don't like, I don't like talking about sin and offense and these kind of things. I don't like it when I hear it, Right? Matt, you've offended me. I don't want to hear that. But you know what? It's got to happen. That conversation has got to happen. And I've learned that in these confrontations, which we are fearful of, as God works in the believer, he produces in those interactions exactly what he intends to do. I'm not saying it always goes well. What I'm saying right now is that I'm rejoicing at the throne of God because he has done this recently in the life of our church. I would say on at least three occasions in the past month. The word works. Also notice here that he gives a negative statement and a positive statement. You received it not as the word of men, negative, but as what it really is, the word of God. So a negative and a positive. 
And that distinguishes their true saving faith from the so-called faith that we often see in our day. You accepted it not as the word of men. So it's likely that Paul was still combating the slanderers of the previous verses who would work to uh, make sure that everybody thinks that Paul's message is just another message of foolishness. It's, a, it's another foolish religious speech. That's all Paul's doing, right? That's what they wanted to do. And he's addressing this even here. And he separates one type of hearer from the other. You know, there are many who hear the gospel and accept it as human-derived, a message to be held on par with all other suggestions for life, other philosophies, other religious thought. Many people can accept the gospel for what it gives them, right? They can accept the gospel for how it can help them in some way in their life. This is that John 2 type of belief, which is not true saving faith. We could also say that many accept the gospel and think, man, that person has really good or really bad, for that matter, communication skills. Oh, that was a great speech. Great speech. Great speech about Jesus and the gospel, right? They can accept it as such. Many accept the good news of Jesus by simply acknowledging that it is a wonderful story. That is a wonderful story. Thank you for telling me that story. I accept that as a story. These and many other responses reveal that these hearers are not hearing the word of God as what it really is. If the gospel is man-made, if it is a word of men, then it has no authority over your life. If the gospel is humanly contrived, it cannot transform you. If the gospel originated from the mind of man, then you can take it or leave it without any repercussions without any expectations, without any consequences, without any eternal fallout. If the gospel is man-made, then you can put it on par with Muhammad's claims next to Joseph Smith's purported visions. You can put it next to Confucius' lists of virtues right near Darwin's theories of macroevolution, right by Buddha's quest for enlightenment alongside Vishnu's efforts to preserve. If the gospel is man-made, it is powerless to save to the uttermost, just like all the other religions and philosophies that the world has ever known. If you came today thinking, I'm going to hear the word of God and maybe I'll, maybe I'll receive it and apply something. No, I hope you're seeing today according to the word of God that it stands authoritative over you. 
If the word proclaimed by Paul, the word proclaimed by Christian scripture, the word proclaimed from the pulpits of faithful churches, if the message of saving grace in Jesus Christ really is the word of God, then it must be accepted as such. Because heaven and hell hang in the balance. Life and death stare us down because ultimate meaning and hopeless futility. I want you to get that. Ultimate meaning and hopeless futility. Those are at stake. The question. Is what you receive about Christ's eternal origin, his sinless life, his vicarious death, his powerful resurrection, and his stunning return in full glory. Is what you hear about the gospel really from God and worthy of full acceptance? Then why do you wait to respond? First Peter 2, 6, those who trust him will never be disappointed. And so I would ask, is the spirit confirming this in you right now? Would you turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation? These Thessalonian believers knew upon hearing the gospel of God that it was, in fact, really, actually, the word of God. And so Paul gives thanks. And I'll tell you, I give thanks today for Cedar View Baptist Church, that Cedar View Baptist Church exists right now in this moment of time because many of you heard the gospel on that glorious day that you recall, hopefully. Many of you heard the gospel. You knew it was from God and you believed. So accept the word as God's word. Also, secondly, I was fearful we weren't going to make it. I may still cut it off. I don't know. Secondly, adhere to God's word when opposition comes, verse 14 to 16. I'm going to move quickly. Listen closely. It really doesn't need to be given as instruction here. I mean, my point, it's a command, but that's not, I mean, it's an assumption really that Paul makes. It seems like Paul's natural expectation is that those who accept God at his word will adhere to it under pressure. Yet the pressure, the opposition, is often what God uses as sort of a vice to authenticate true and saving faith. Paul is convinced that these believers are the real thing because, what they have, because of what they have endured. Even so, early in their Christian life, they endured these things. 
He commends them for imitating the Judean churches as evidence that they believed God's divinely granted word in the gospel. And imitation is such an interesting word here because we know that these saints imitated Paul and his companions when they were there. And now he says, Paul says that they're imitating other churches. And we, ha- we have to ask, like, how is that? They couldn't see these other churches. They couldn't see what they were doing. So we got to consider the fact that there's no observation going on from the Thessalonian believers of these Judean churches at best. They only knew of some of the events that had taken place. I would tell you they unknowingly imitated the churches because they looked at the same God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as did the other churches amid their opposition. This says right here, their own countrymen resorted to the same violence coming from the Jews in Judea, the same uh, violence that ensued in the early days of the faith, in the early days of the church, and then continued in those churches that sprung up throughout the region as the gospel advanced. Countrymen here is not a word that describes Gentiles, nor is it a word that describes Jews. It describes, commentators agree, a mixed mob of people, as I was telling you about earlier, like Acts 17. This mob of people that that cast Paul and his companions out of Thessalonica. And so when he left, the opposition didn't leave. When Paul was cast out, the opposition simply became the ongoing problem for the resident believers of Thessalonica. And so what he does in the rest of these verses, he's using the elite Jews of Judea as the leading example for all people who oppose the progress of the gospel. And really, as these verses unfold, Paul, if we can say it this way, digresses. It becomes an intense statement of condemnation. Hear what he says. You suffered the same things your own countrymen from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And they get this, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out and displeased, present tense, God, and present tense, oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Michael Martin describes the list of offenses as having a harsh and angry texture. Neil says it's vitriolic. Hebert calls it an outburst. Now, I don't want you to get off track and start thinking that Paul hated these opponents. No. This is the same Paul in Romans that said, I wish I could be accursed and cut off from God so that these people could be saved. He literally says, I wish I could go to hell for them. And now he's saying, these people are getting in the way of God's purposes. He is overflowing with righteous anger for their outright rejection of the gospel and devotion to snuffing out the message of Christ altogether. Listen, listen to Denny. He says, it is the vehement condemnation by a man in thorough sympathy with the mind and spirit of God. 
of the principles which the Jews as a nation had acted at every period of their history. You know, we just got through preaching through Jeremiah, and wasn't that the case? Every single turn, rejection of God's word, rejection of his grace. There are a few things to remember here. First off, past opposition. He gives two statements that deal with past events. First, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. More notes here that Paul sort of gathers up all unbelieving Jews of all times essentially as one. Now note, the, cru- the crucifixion that was carried out at the hands of Pilate and Herod was initiated at the demand of these unbelieving Jews. Remember the story. They hated Jesus. The prophets themselves were frequently the subject of murderous plots of the Jews throughout history. Jeremiah, beaten, thrown in pits, put in stocks. Ultimately, he died because of his ministry at the hands of his own people. Jesus, even, speaking to the Jewish leaders, he says, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And he says, fill up the measure then. Fill up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That's Jesus' words. Hebert reminds us that the same woe, that was amidst the woes, the same woe is repeated by Stephen as he awaits his stoning. And guess who was standing by holding Stephen's clothes? It was that Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul, who we now know as Paul, the writer of this letter. We know how they treated God's prophets. Past opposition. Secondly, he says they drove us out. At the end of his stint in Thessalonica, the Jews drove him out of the city. Acts 17.5. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. See, all these people, they just wanted everybody involved. Wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and they could not find Paul and his companions. Paul was now a firsthand recipient of the dedication of the Jews and others from this mob who sought to crush any gospel advance. Past opposition, and then there's present hostility. Two more statements. Y'all bear with me. Two more statements deal with the ongoing present tense events. First of all, Present tense, they displease God. The word here is ironic because in everything they did, didn't they? Jews sought in their own mind, they sought to please God. Lightfoot said it was, the, it, it was in this situation and in many others, they only succeeded in becoming obnoxious to God. But he gives another one here. Second, they, present tense, oppose all mankind. All mankind, literally hostile. They are hostile to humankind. Hostile to the nations. So these acts listed by Paul culminate in the declaration that they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. 
while beginning as a nation divinely called to be a separate people, Hebert says, the Jews had become a sinfully exclusive and bigoted nation. Can you imagine being a Jew in this mob thinking, there is no way that God would save these pagan, no good people. We are his chosen people. Paul, I can't believe you're promoting this garbage that God could save anybody. There is present hostility. Now, I want to stop here. I want to give you some applications. We're going to close. First off, it's different ways we're, we can take this. Believer, are you courageous? Does the word of God give you the courage when opposition comes or are the risks too great for you? Are you willing to maintain the confession that you have in Christ in the face of death, in the loss of possessions, the violent mistreatment, being cast out? Are you courageous? Second, second application, and this is also for believers. Maybe some would be believers. Believer, are you, are you a religious elitist? course you're like of course not you know we are not exempt i'm not exempt we are not exempt exempt from the satanic religious elitism of the pharisees ethnocentrism racism even theological arrogance you know there are people out there that think they are so right all they do is have pity on all the rest of us don't know any better Theological arrogance. There's so many other prideful sins that become a roadblock to mission. In your religious activity, have you made yourself the gatekeeper of who can and cannot be saved or transformed by God? You may do this subtly. On mission, do you avoid certain people because they make you uncomfortable? If this is you, you may consider yourself a believer that you try to please God, but your soul, I would tell you, is in danger. The third application is for the unbeliever. And I would just ask you flat out, are you a hindrance to the gospel? Do you oppose the entirety of mankind by standing in the way of God's work to save? And I would say... It's one thing to reject the gospel, but it's another thing to devote yourself to silencing the word of God. Linsky writes, the worst feature of unbelief is not its own damnation, but its effort to frustrate the salvation of others. I'm amazed at the number of unbelievers who spend so much time and energy to disprove the Christian faith. It reeks of insecurity. There's past opposition, there's present hostility, and then, as we conclude, there's pending punishment. For those that look at others as undeserving of grace and those who would devote themselves to hindering the gospel, Paul gives two warnings for you. First, he says, you are filling up the measure of your sins. 
Calvin says here, sometimes God delays punishment against the ungodly because their acts of hostility are not yet ripe. God might allow you to squeeze every last drop of rebellion out of your life and against him. But please know what awaits you according to God's word. And that's where the second warning is. Wrath has come upon them at last. It's a terrible outcome to be given over to the lustful desires of the flesh, to the corruption of the mind and the body, to the rebellion of human wisdom. And so I plead with you this morning, do not become a victim of your own unbelief. The more you walk in arrogant unbelief, the more the dark, stormy clouds of God's terrifying judgment gather over you. And in God's timing, let me change the metaphor, the, the dam of his patience will break and his justice will destroy you in a flood of unending wrath. Wrath has come upon them at last. Yet, in God's endless supply of grace, salvation is always available to you. Though many take the broad road along with the unbelieving Israelites of the Old Testament, along with the unbelieving Jews since then, along with the nations that refuse to surrender to the sovereign God, there is always a remnant. They're always the ones who take the narrow road that leads to life. Do not perish in your own unbelief. Repent while it is still called today. Believe on Jesus and be welcomed by God and be welcomed by his people into his beloved family. It is worthy of full acceptance. Christ died to save sinners. Believers, those of you who have come to know and walk with the Lord, why, I would ask, why, why do worldly concerns have such a hold on you? You weigh the risks, you know, like, man, this is important to me. I don't want to give it up. What risks seem too great to overcome? The question that James asks is so appropriate. What is your life? It's just a vapor, a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes. Why are you putting so much stock in your earthly days that you would bring damage upon your own soul? Lay your life at Jesus' feet this morning. If God's word really is God's word, then his call to new life outweighs all the risks. Be courageous to walk in a manner worthy of God no matter what comes. I'm done. Respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're grateful for these glorious truths. that we don't hear the word preached and we don't open the scripture as simply a, a set of good stories and suggestions, but as what it really is, your word.
the word that you have breathed out. The word that you inspired through the Holy Spirit. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. But is your word that will stand forever. And we pray that as we hear your word for what it is, we would be emboldened, strengthened for the task, courageous, that we would be able to withstand all that may come against the progress of the gospel, all that may come against the church of those believing saints. Father, we're grateful to be counted among that number, number those of us who believe on Jesus Holy Spirit, help us as we respond to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.